like Heather just prayed, like we already mentioned, uh, we are going to talk about uh, some kind of heavy stuff this morning. I'm, I'm just to let you know, I'm going to invite you to think about a little more um, where you might have, maybe presently, maybe in your past, where you might have suffered hurt. So I'm, I'm just going to let you know that that's coming. Um, but first, I want to talk to you about a matter of uh, great theological importance. It's something I've been thinking of, I've been kind of reflecting on for a while, um, namely superheroes. I just, I need to talk to you about superheroes for a little while. I, I really expected more laughter when I said superheroes. I felt like I, felt like I, I had the timing down, all of it. Um, I've been thinking about what's the quintessential, what's the prototype superhero, and I've come up with my answer. Now, you might not agree with my answer, and if you disagree with me, A, you're wrong, but B, B, we can agree to disagree agreeably. We can do that, can't we, right? We can overcome these differences. Now, in my mind, the two prototypical superheroes are, um, and, and two of my favorites, the classics, are Superman and Spider-Man. Now, a number of ways that they are prototypical. First of all, they're superheroes whose superhero names start with an S. Oh. And not only do their superhero names alliterate with superhero, but their regular identity names, Peter Parker and Clark Kent, also alliterate, which means maybe great English writing is the real superpower. Anybody with me? English teachers unite. But the thing about these two that, I, that, that sort of have influenced, to some degree, almost every superhero character to follow is this aspect of their lives. They're a normal guy, a journalist, a freelance photographer. They're rather boring and uninteresting as people. But then all they need to do is rip off the jacket or put on the hood and bam, they become somebody incredible. Like maybe there's somebody incredible inside all of us, we find ourselves thinking. And it's different, right? The superheroes that followed took on different characteristics. Um, They had different superpowers. Their regular lives sometimes weren't quite so regular. Um, We have some others that you've thought about. We have Tony Stark, and Iron Man, obviously Tony, you know, not super normal life. Uh, Bruce Wayne and Batman. Bruce Wayne, you know, he's um, We have King T'Challa and the Black Panther. Yes, and maybe the greatest of them all, we have Bruce Banner and the Incredible Hulk. Just love the, the, char- the plot arc of the Incredible Hulk throughout the Marvel comic universe, just well done, Marvel. Um, I mean, DC, you know, you, you had a good try at the whole movie thing, too, DC Comics. You tried. Good job. You failed, but you tried. <laughs> I actually got one angry email, jokingly angry, but maybe not jokingly, about how I didn't even mention DC Comics in my all-church email. Like, what? You're not even going to mention them? I mentioned them. Um... So here's the thing, the superhero world has proven via the amount of money they've made, the number of movies, TV shows, comic books, books, just the amount of attention that's gotten, they've proven to us that we as humans seem to be fascinated by this idea of somebody who's a normal human and also a superhuman. But I think 
you're all sitting here going, Carl, what's the matter of great theological importance? And I can feel your anticipation. I can just feel it building, and I'm glad. Uh, here it is. Um, I think that they got the idea from the Bible. I think that Marvel and DC Comics have designed their superheroes based on an ancient biblical truth, namely, that Christians have asserted and believed for millennia that Jesus was fully God and fully human. That in one person, there was something entirely familiar, accessible, normal that we can relate with, and yet also something entirely beyond us. The main difference being, of course, Jesus didn't put on some or take off some costume to switch between. Rather, he was fully God and fully human, all at one and the same time. Here's the, here's the interesting observation about that. I think in many Christian circles, I think, I think myself, and I think maybe you've seen this in other churches, we really like to focus on the fully God part of it. Like, whoa, Jesus wasn't just a person. Like, yeah, history says he was a person. We know he was really a person, but that person was actually God in a bod. He was, to use the theological term, God incarnate, right? Or as Eugene Peterson so beautifully said, God took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood, right? We like this idea of something divine and beyond here in human form. But today, and next Sunday, and even for a part of Easter Sunday, what I want to do is I actually want to focus on the other side of that statement. Yes, Jesus was God himself on earth as a man. What does it mean that Jesus was fully human? And here's the big idea that we're going to talk about for the next few minutes together. What it means is that every single human emotion, thought, relationship, experience that we could have, Jesus has also had them, with the one exception of sin. We're going to get into that a little bit later. But Here's how we're going to explore this question. What does it mean that Jesus was fully human? We're going to explore it by looking particularly at the last two days of his life. Starting on Thursday night when he gets a meal with his best friends in the room. And continuing right up through his death on the cross in crucifixion. And we're going to, in these experiences that he has, we're going to say, how do we see Jesus' humanity in this? And if Jesus really was human, if he really experienced it. He wasn't just levitating above it like Captain Marvel, sort of floating in from the clouds. Rather, he really experienced it in the same way we experience it. What does that do for us? And so um, the, the sermon title uh, for now through Easter, it's, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, I, I like sort of more lighthearted, happy sermon titles. You know, last sermon series, Finishing Well, we had that guy on the little go-kart crashing. It was funny. Um, this one, it's, it's, it's not funny. It's, it's heavy. And we just ca- I came up with the three um, central experiences of the last two days of Jesus' life. Namely, that he was betrayed, he was lonely, and he was misunderstood. In the last 48 hours of his life, Jesus was betrayed, he was lonely, and he was misunderstood. And here's the first scripture we're going to look at. Uh, we're going to look at that first one today. Jesus was betrayed. He was betrayed? Ooh, that's like, a, that's like a, 
Oh, that's a hard, that's a heavy word. Uh, the passage that I'm going to start with, but we're going to kind of work through a few different passages this morning, but the passage that I'll start with um, is one of maybe the most familiar that names this. Uh, almost every time we celebrate communion together, we read the description of this meal in Jesus's life as written by his apostle Paul in his letter to the church in Corinth. And Paul wrote, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And we move on and we say he broke the bread and he took the cup and just as he gave to his disciples, he gives to us. But I want to just stop right there and say, whoa, 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 whoa. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he was betrayed? I mean, sure, you know, maybe I'm bad at picking friends. Maybe I pick friends who are just going to come around and hurt me. And, and maybe I have that coming. Okay, maybe not. But like, I, but Jesus, this is God on earth. And when he got betrayed? If you read the story of the Last Supper, as it's called, in Matthew's account, just before we get to the description of the meal itself, here's what we read. Then one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I betray him to you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he began to look for an opportunity to betray him. Let's just let this sink in a second. I want to I ask you to do a little uh, uh, mental exercise. Um, think back through your life. Who are the people that you've been closest to in your life? Think, you know, bring their names to mind, bring their faces to mind. Who are some of the people that you've been closest to? You've been more than a friend. They've been like a brother or sister. You've known them and trusted them more than anybody else. Do you have some, some names, faces coming to mind? Okay, good. Like three of you nodded. The rest of you, come on, get with it, people. Come on. Um, now, what if, I, what if I limited that to just 12? Name, what if I said, who are the 12 people that you've been closest to in your life. I mean, hopefully some of your family, you know, that might be with you right now, maybe some good friends, maybe some good childhood friends, maybe those childhood friends are still in your life today. If you had to make a list of 12, it turns out Jesus had a list of 12 and he told everybody, he's like, hey, these are my 12. Um, I don't recommend you do that. If you make the list, I wouldn't go around being like, ooh, you were close, man. You were number 14. You were so close. But I mean, 14 is still pretty good. But Jesus had these 12 who were the closest with him. He trusted them. He knew them. They traveled with him. They ate with him. They slept in the same roof with him. They heard him teach. They ministered alongside of him. And one of Jesus' 12 betrayed him. Betrayal is variously defined as a violation of trust or, consequent, or, or, or confidence. If there's no trust to begin with, it's not a betrayal. It might still hurt, but without trust, it's not a betrayal. To lie to, cheat, abuse, or hurt someone who trusted you, who you trusted. Sure, I mean, it hurts to be lied to, cheated, 
stole from. But it hurts even more when that happens by somebody you trusted. And in this particular case, with Judas Iscariot, it has a uniquely painful meaning. It's not just that Judas uh, uh, left, you know, broke confidence, broke the trust in Jesus, but that in doing so, he turned Jesus over to an enemy. It's like a double hurt. Now, here's the thing about betrayal. Um, and if you've ever been hurt by somebody you trust, whether it's betrayal or one of the many ways that can happen, you, you already know this, so I don't need to tell you, but like, it's not just that it hurts in the moment, but this type of pain has uh, echoes, reverberating consequences throughout our lives. It can not only hurt in the relationship where it happened, it can hurt and have consequences in other relationships as well. Here's one author's description. Uh, the effects of betrayal include shock, loss and grief, a morbid preoccupation, damaged self-esteem, self-doubting, anger. Not, infre- for, not infrequently, they produce life-altering changes. The effects of catastrophic betrayal are most relevant for anxiety disorders and OCD and PTSD in particular. I stumbled across the story of a singer-songwriter. Her name is Linda Thompson. I'd never heard of her before. Uh, Turns out, when she was young, uh, she dated a guy named Elvis Presley. Ever heard of him? You might have if you hadn't heard of Linda Thompson. Guessing you heard of Elvis Presley. She performed with people like Elton John. So she's been on some big stages. Well, Linda's life was such that um, she actually did most of her performing with her husband. And her husband did most of the songwriting, and she would perform the songs, and they would tour together. He would play the instruments. She's the vocalist. Much of the, many of the songs that her husband wrote were actually, um, they went kind of dark, exploring much of the kind of heavy, hurtful, broken content of this world that we live in. Things like betrayal, hardship, hurt, loss, suffering. Well, Linda and her husband were about to go on tour. They had it scheduled. But it was scheduled to start a couple months after their third child was born. So their third child's born. A couple weeks into, you know, adjusting to the new rhythms of life, and her husband comes up to her and says, Hey, Linda, um, I met somebody else, and I'm leaving. Okay, well, two kind of unbelievable things. First of all, uh, Linda decided to still go through with the tour that had been scheduled. So she performed heartbreaking songs with the man who broke her heart. And right after the tour was done, because of the betrayal, Linda lost her voice. And it would be decades before she would ever sing again. The betrayal on an emotional, relational level, hurt her so much that it had physical wounds that showed up in her body. Jesus was betrayed. He was betrayed by somebody closer to than anyone else. Now let me ask you the question that we don't like to ask ourselves, but we know we have to think about and we have to name and we have to be honest about, um, 
When have you been hurt by someone you trust? And the follow-up question is this. What are you doing with that? Are you doing what I learned to do or or figured out how to do as a fifth grade boy? You're telling yourself, you know what, maybe if I just ignore it long enough, then it'll go away. Well, it turns out I've tried that even since fifth grade. And like I said, I still have got a perfect record of that strategy never, ever working. Jesus was fully human, and in his fully human experience, he was betrayed. He experienced some of the most unimaginable pain that I'm certain had physical, caused physical hurt in him, just like Linda Thompson. Sure, maybe he didn't lose his voice, but I think the story of Linda Thompson is an example of, it's not like our emotions and our physical body and and our psychological world are somehow separate from one another. They are all integrated. It's like when you're driving in the car and, you know, a car pulls out in front of you and you slam on the brakes. And even though you physically slammed on the brakes, you have this emotional, (gasps) something physical happening, something emotional happening, something emotional happening. It has physical consequences. So what's the significance of thinking through this on the fact that Jesus was fully human? Uh, The author of Hebrews gives us what I think is just one of the most beautiful sentences Naming it. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. So a few things. One. There is an experience Jesus has never had that we have had, which is responding to the hurt of the world with sin. Jesus never did that. And yet, it says he was tempted in every way. And I think the witness of Scripture says that we can appropriately substitute out for tempted. He was hurt in every way. He suffered in every way. He struggled or was confused in every way. He questioned God in every way. Jesus went through all of the full normal range of human emotions that every one of us went through. And what the author of Hebrews says is that Jesus can empathize with any pain or struggle we're going with, going through. Okay, I want to do a, a, a quick little nerd out on the side. Love to dive into ancient languages. Um, this is the NIV. The NIV says, empathize. If you like to do this thing, go you know, pull out your Bible app, or if you have a bunch of Bibles at home in different translations, look at the other translations. Most of the rest of the major English translations say sympathize. Hmm. The NIV says empathize. Now, normally, when Craig Blomberg is here, he's on the committee that translated the NIV. I'd just call him up and be like, what was behind the decision? But he's off in Europe visiting his grandkids, so I couldn't call him. I guess I could have called him. So I had to do my own research. Okay, um, what's the difference between sympathize and empathize? Here's my summary of what I got. If I sympathize with you, sum, it means with, right? Sympathy is to be with someone in their pain. Pathos just means pain or suffering. Sympathy is to be with someone in their suffering. 
Empathy is to be in the suffering itself. I mean, we've been, we've been through that. You're with somebody and they're hurt and you're, I'm going to be with you and my presence is comforting. And we know that God is with us in all our suffering, but I've been in a place where it's like, I'm with you. I literally can't even imagine what you're feeling right now. I don't get it. I've not known that. I've not felt that, but I'm going to be with you in your suffering. That's powerful. Sympathy's powerful. But what the Hebrew, the author of Hebrews says is not just that Jesus is with us. He most certainly is, but he has himself also felt it. Jesus is not just with us in our pain. He is inside himself also feeling the very pain we are also feeling. He comes up. He says, I see you. I know you. I get it. I, I can feel you and your pain. And we get glimpses of this all throughout Scripture. Just the fullness of Jesus' humanity. We read stories about where he was hungry, he was tired, he was weary, he was moved, sometimes with compassion, sometimes with anger. He was troubled, confused, complicated in this world. He wept. He prayed. He got angry. He grew up and matured. He questioned. He said things like, God, why? God, can you take this cup from me? So here's the way I kind of conclude on this reflection. Um, if Jesus was fully human, and if we can acknowledge that sometimes when we experience a perfectly human thing, we experience pain, suffering, hardship, and we're tempted to respond by pretending it's not there, ignoring it, lying about it, covering up. If Jesus was fully human, and he made it known that he felt the things that we're feeling, he suffered the things that we're suffering, he struggled with the things that we're struggling with. If Jesus was fully human, I think, it's okay for us to. Is there any part of your humanity right now that you're denying? Is there part of your experience, your life, your reality who you are, how you're living, what you're going through, what's coming your way, and you're just hoping that if you ignore it long enough, it might go away. If so, remember this. Remember this. There's no suffering that God himself has not also suffered. No temptation God himself has not also been tempted by. No pain God has not also felt. No matter your pain, God is with you in that pain. And there's a flip side of it as well. What that also means is even in those painful moments, when you suffer, you are like Christ. And so we always think about, we read God's word and we want God's word to not just be in our heads, but in our hearts and live through our lives. And so I ask every week, and, and you know, it runs the risk uh, by asking it every week of just becoming sort of a thing. I say that you go, yeah, 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 your move, Carl. I get what's coming. Okay, I know. Come, move on to the next slide. But it's serious. Faith is not simply belief. It is life and choice and action. So if it's true that God was fully human on earth, and so it's okay for us to be fully human too, what is your move 
and my move going to be? I'm going to suggest three things. I, I bet they're not new to you. Um, I mean, often the truth of Scripture is, is nothing that we couldn't have necessarily come up with ourselves or at least that we haven't heard many times before. It's not about learning some new nugget of truth. It's about letting God's truth get deeper into and throughout of our lives. Um, so first, where do you need to name your suffering or your pain? We already did it in prayer with God this morning, but I would encourage you to take it a next step and say, who's the trusted person that I can risk being vulnerable with about my pain? We live in a world that loves to polish every image we put out in the world. Where can I be unpolished, unvarnished, let down every single one of the guards and say, oh, this is where I'm really at. Ask yourself this, am I allowing myself? Am I allowing myself to actually be a human? Because what we know is humans suffer, make mistakes, mess up, struggle, wrestle. That is a human thing to do. With that, practice vulnerability. I was uh, talking with a friend, and he was, express, he, was, he was exploring the difference between transparency and vulnerability. Transparency can be meaningful. I think a lot of times what I do in a sermon is transparency. I just shared uh, about a time in fifth grade when I was really hurt emotionally and I was crying on the playground. That was transparent. Uh, and if you know me, you've probably heard a bigger part of the story, but I'll be honest, there's not much risk in me sharing that hurt with you. There's, there's maybe a tiny, some little bit of risk, but there's not that much risk. Vulnerability it's when I share in such a way that I'm actually opening myself up to the chance of being hurt by you because of what I've just shared. And vulnerability, or as some people might call it, authenticity, is where that real power of transformation comes because we're saying, you know what, I don't have it all together, but I'm going to risk being vulnerable with another person about this. Jesus was fully human. And because that's true, it's okay for us to be fully human too. Be honest with ourselves. Be honest with God. Be honest with others. There's um, a phrase throughout Scripture that gets echoed time and time again that talks about what the hope of the Christian life is. If I'm following Christ with my life, if I'm not just reading God's Word, not just studying God's Word, and living it out in my life, what are some of the results going to be? Well, one of the themes of those results is that we become more and more like Christ. We put on the love of Christ. We imitate Christ. There's even one scripture, Paul, he said we can, be, uh, we can grow to the full measure of Christ. Whoa! But wait a minute. Christ was fully human and he suffered. So suddenly I go... <laughs> I actually want to be like Christ. I mean, sure, the resurrection, that was awesome. I'll take that part, like that cool, that part where he got like really angry and turned the tables and the whip and he didn't get in trouble for it. Like, all right, neat. Can I figure out how to do that? But betrayed by a friend? 
You know what I think I might actually like instead? I think I might actually like being more like Superman. Where I can just rip off the clothes, put on the cape, and suddenly be transformed into somebody who's far above this human world and experience that I live in. Sometimes I don't want to be like Christ. I want to be like the superheroes that Marvel has so effectively made me fall in love with. But as we all know, that is not what's going to happen. And in fact, it's not what we actually want. Instead, here's the invitation God gives us. God came to earth and became fully, completely, entirely, in every experience, a human. So that you and I can entirely embrace and celebrate and live as humans, too. Would you guys pray with me? Um, God, we've already confessed, we've already admitted. We're broken people living in a broken world. And I'm guessing that, that not a few of us would also admit so often we, we exert our energy trying to ignore that, pretend it's not true, push it aside, put on a happier face or a nicer looking front. But God, Scripture tells us that in your life, in the last days, you were terribly hurt by someone so close to you and you felt that. You were wounded by that. God, if it's true that you were fully human, I pray that we might live our lives with the permission to be fully human as well. Amen.